Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. Where I'm going to start is with what I call the, the neuroskeptical case, the neuroskeptical case against freedom of the will. And at this point, in, in what I'm going to read to you, I've already dismissed what a lot of people think are findings from the neurosciences that undermine the notion of free will. But I don't think there's much that there's much interesting they have to tell us. Okay, so uh, I've kind of like gotten the low-hanging fruit out of the way initially. And what I want to talk about uh, initially here, or you know, for our discussion, is a case against freedom of the will based on findings of neuroscience that I think is rather interesting and has a great deal of traction, okay? And then I'm going to give uh, you know, my long response to this, okay? All right, so the neuroskeptical case against freedom of the will. By neuroskeptic, I mean someone who denies that we have freedom of the will based on supposed implications of neuroscientific findings. In recent years, there have been no small number of neuroskeptics, both addressing academic and popular audiences. Neuroscientific findings gathered over the last few decades do seemingly provide much stronger support for neuroskepticism. These findings do not merely point out uh, to what for many of us are the expected neurophysiological underpinnings of our free will, uh, but seem to give us good reason to conclude that these experiences have nothing to do with the causation of our activities, or at least that is how these findings have been interpreted. That is, we have scientific reasons to doubt whether conscious deliberation is in fact a causal antecedent of our actions. So the ball gets rolling in 1964 when two German scientists, Hans Helmut Kornhuber and uh, Luder Dicke, set out to investigate the degree to which the brain is actively involved in decision-making. To that end, they conducted an experiment in which human subjects were asked to tap with one finger at whatever interval they chose while any changes in the level of brain activity were recorded. And this is a simplification of what they were up to, okay? But I think it works. Dickey and Kornhuber found that there was indeed a spike in brain activity leading up to the subject's finger tapping. They recalled this increased, they, they called this increased activity in the subject's brains the readiness potential, as they interpreted it as the nervous system's preparation to bring about an action. The discovery of the readiness potential was certainly a big deal scientifically, as it showed the brain really does have a direct role in bringing about uh, an action. 
And Kornhuber and Dickey's experiments hinted at some interesting philosophical questions. Nevertheless, their, dis their discovery of the readiness potential was not initially proposed as a reason to call the notion of free will into doubt. As the results were perfectly uh, consistent with the proposal uh, that the antecedent act of will is the cause of the readiness potential. Later experiments, those uh, by Benjamin Liebet, however, do seemingly raise just such a specter. Liebet was intrigued by the fact that there is a lag between the gathering of the readiness potential and the actual downstream movement. It is not a big gap, a micro fraction of a second, but in neurological terms, where things are measured by the speed of electricity, that is a significant interval. Why is there a substantial gap in time between the decision to act and the subsequent activity? Liebet looked into this by varying Kornhuber and Dickey's experiment uh, a bit. He had the human subjects use a sort of clock, and once again, this is a simplification, to record when they consciously decided to move their finger. While their brains were simultaneously being monitored for the onset of the readiness potential. The incredible result, leave it found, was that the subject's conscious sense of their decision occurred, though only by a tiny fraction of a second, after the buildup of the readiness potential. In other words, it seems that Liebet found that the brain has already decided to perform the action before the subject's conscious sense of having made such a decision. The conscious part of the decision seems to be after the fact. So it is difficult to see how it can play any determining role in what will eventually happen. The experience of free will, as it were, is just as much an effect of the realization of the readiness potential as the subsequent physiological movements. The shared assumption of the contemporary free will debate is that ethically significant actions must be caused by an agent's exercise of the will, where an exercise of the will is an antecedently occurring resolution to deliberation among the available options. Libertarians, hard determinists, and compatibilists, whatever their other disagreements, all agree that antecedent conscious deliberation is a necessary condition for ethically significant actions. Because such doings must, in one sense or another, be free. And free actions must be caused by the conscious will. Liebet's experiment, however, seems to show that the conscious act of willing is not antecedent to the readiness potential, and is therefore not the cause of our actions. The threat to freedom and moral agency does not come from the plausibility of determinism or the implausibility of compatibilism or libertarianism. Rather, the problem is the will does not seem to do any significant work in causing our activities. All that work is done beforehand by the nervous system. All the world, real work seems to be done by neurological activity, which is itself temporally antecedent to our supposed acts of will. Okay, there's no small uh, amount of properly scientific along with philosophical controversy about these experiments and their interpretation. Serious questions have been raised regarding whether they really do support the philosophical conclusions neuroskeptics infer from them on scientific grounds. And in fact, Liebig doesn't do that. But I will not wade into those deep waters here, but not because I doubt there is anything to worry about in this vicinity. I am nevertheless happy to concede that Liebig-style scientists and neuroskeptical philosophers 
interpreting their results have in fact shown that their subjects were not acting freely or in any other ethically significant way. I do not find this terribly troubling because, as I shall argue below, ethical agency worth having has very little to do with the sorts of things that Liebet and other experiments that I've mentioned above in the earlier versions uh, have, have observed. In fact, I believe Liebet-style experiments do the proponent of bona fide capacities for ethically significant actions on the part of human beings a service by disabusing us finally of a wrong-headed way of framing our understanding of our free capacities. Okay, so what are ethically significant actions as I'm using that term here? And why wouldn't we worry us about them? There are three important facts about the neuroskeptical case that we need to focus on in order to understand the philosophical implications of the scientific evidence they appeal to. The actions, and I am reluctant to even call them actions, the subjects perform in the Leibniz-style experiments are arbitrary, insignificant, and episodic. Arbitrary, insignificant, and episodic. By arbitrary, I mean the performances in the Leibniz-style experiments are not what recent philosophers have called reasons sensitive. They are not doings that can be rationally justified. When asked to tap your finger at any interval of your choosing, without being given any further end, this interval tapping might serve your decision for one interval over another is not something for, for which you can give a reason. Supposing Cormac were a subject in a Leibniz-style experiment. When asked why he tapped his finger at any given moment, as opposed to any other moment in the infinity of perfectly good moments at which he might have tapped, there is no reason he could give for why he tapped at that moment rather than another. He could only cite a brute fact. That's just what I chose to do. Maybe Cormac could give, I want to be a good experimental participant, or some such to explain why he's finger tapping at all. Nevertheless, notice that the Leibniz experiment is not aimed at rooting out the antecedent causes of Cormac's finger tapping in general, but his finger tapping at one interval instead of all the other possibilities. For that explanation, it would seem Cormac could only say, well, that's what I just happened to decide. Notice, however, that I choose it might be a cause of acting, but it's not a reason for acting. If I were to ask Cormac, why did you leave for swim practice early today? And he replied, because I chose to leave early. I would point out to him that he has really not answered my question, probably sternly too, okay? Of course, he chose to do so. That's why I'm asking him why he left early. If he had not decided the matter, I would not be asking him for an explanation. I wanted to know not whether he chose it, I knew that. I wanted to know why he did it, not the causal process that led up to or finalized the decision. Typically, a reason is an end that the agent aims to achieve by such an action. If Cormac were to answer my question with, so that I can get some extra laps in for my breaststroke, or so I can goof around in the pool with the other guys, whatever I might think of the relative worth of these justifications for his action, either of these replies provides an intelligible reason for acting. That is, they tell us what end he thought he was moving toward when he left for practice early. Notice that finger tapping, or pardon me, notice that tapping your finger at some random interval 
is not reason sensitive in this way. The performance is arbitrary in that it serves no end. And an agent acting in such a way, if we can even call it an action, uh, can offer no meaningful justification for what he or she is doing. Notice that a reason for acting is typically an end that would plausibly justify such an action, which is to say that reasons for acting are typically goods the agent expects or hopes will be brought about by, by so acting. This emphasis on the notion of reasons as goods highlights the insignificance of the performances the subjects in the Leibniz style experiments were asked to do. I take it that only ends that can be seen as being significant to us are intelligible explanations of actions. To say that I acted to achieve some end implies that such an end is a, is a good to me. As Aristotle opens what is likely the most historically influential discussion of ethically significant actions in the Western tradition, quote, every action and deliberative choice seeks some good, end quote. Certainly a condition of something being a good to me is what is motive is that it is it, that it is something I care about, or it contributes to something I care about. In other words, when I ask Cormac, why did you do that? I am looking for re his reasons, not merely the causes for his action. And only ends of acting that have significance to him would serve as, as a plausible answer to the question. So that I could get some extra laps from my breaststroke, or so I could goof around in the pool with, my, with the other guys serve as reasons for Cormac's early departure because we can understand these states of affairs as goods or contributing to goods uh, he is likely to care about, becoming a better swimmer, having fun with his friends. If Cormac uh, replied to my query about his early departure by saying, well, I just wanted a, the minute hand on the clock to point to six instead of nine as I walked through the door, I would need some broader explanation as to why the position of the minute hand could possibly matter to him enough uh, as to justify some particular course of action before I could see that as part of an actual explanation of his early departure. A correct follow-up to such a reply would be the further question, how can you possibly care about that? In short, reason-sensitive doings matter or have significance to the agents who perform them in virtue of the goods they serve. An end the agent simply does not care about is not really why the agent performs such an action, or at least it leaves the real justification of such an action as unknown. Notice that in the Leibniz style experiments, the finger tapping performances of the subjects are, are, are quite insignificant to them. It is hard to believe that any subject cared about which moment she tapped her finger as opposed to any other of the infinity of other possible moments she might have tapped. If similar exercises of finger tapping were involved in an Olympic event in digital dexterity, there would be a, a, there would be a, a ready to hand response or for an explanation. Nevertheless, under the experimental conditions, Nothing is at stake in which, arbitrarily chosen, in which arbitrarily chosen moment you tap your finger. And as such, no significant reasons explanation can be given uh, of these movements. Reason giving is a normative affair, and norms presuppose a level of concern or care about what they govern. Finally, 
The performances in the Leibniz-style experiments are episodic in the sense that the decision leading up to them takes place at a discrete clockable moment. That is, we are dealing with events that can be shown to have occurred at a specific time, or at least during a definite hard edge time interval. The subjects in the Leibniz-style experiment were clocked at the exact time at which they thought they consciously made the decision to tap their finger, or nearly so. Likewise, the readiness potential was detected at a definite time. Both the conscious perception of the decision and the neurophysiological activity were timed down to the fraction of a second. It is only because the decision to act in these cases can be precisely characterized as a discrete episode that we are concerned with such an event, the conscious episode or the neurophysiological episode, and we are concerned with which event comes first. Since the decision to tap your finger arbitrarily and insignificantly is a discrete episode, it makes sense to look for its cause among other antecedent discrete episodes. A necessary condition for one discrete episode uh, explaining another is that the one, the one doing the causing comes first in time or at least simultaneously. For this reason, the Leibniz-style experiments uh, take the conscious episode and the neurophysiological episode in a sort of competition for who goes first, wherein the winner is the real decision responsible for the subsequent finger tapping. Now, I'm not concerned whether Leibniz-style experiments show that conscious volitions are, in fact, uh, epiphenomenal in cases of arbitrary, insignificant, and episodic decisions to act. In fact, I would expect that organisms, even rational and reflective organisms like us, would have a mechanism wherein they can determine actions in an arbitrary way on a split second's notice. There is not a lot of time for neat reasons sensitivity when the saber-toothed tiger shows up on the plains uh, of our, for our prehistoric ancestors. It is better to do something rather than nothing in such a situation. Even running in an arbitrarily chosen direction ups your chances of not getting eaten better than remaining stationary while wrought with indecision. At least you might distract the predator from cherished kin who are lucky enough to pick a different direction of retreat. In more recent times, we have learned to hedge against these, the often ill consequences of making arbitrary snap decisions in the face of, the, of an immediate crisis by offloading information into our environment. For example, emergency exit signs and the like. But we should expect that we do have a just do something, do anything mechanism in our cognitive toolbox. It is quite plausible that the Leibniz-style experiments have uncovered the neurophysiological underpinnings of just such a cognitive structure to act randomly. True that may be, but how relevant is, that, is this sort of decision-making to ethically significant action. Take, for example, my decision to marry my wife. Was that decision arbitrary? Hardly. I could cite many reasons rendering that course of action perfectly rational, even impeccably justified. A decision to marry a particular person is certainly something we would expect to be reason-sensitive in this way. This decision had the highest significance to me because it was a consequence of and partly constitutive of my commitment to living a certain form of life. We see this kind of decision as, an important, as important or grave because it plays such a life-defining role. A decision gains ethical significance, in part due to the fact that it reflects a commitment to a particular vision of what counts as a good life. 
ethically significant actions aim at goods that matter to us because of their role in what we take to be the very point of our lives. Such actions either define our notions of the good life. For instance, if I say, because I have married you, I am thereby committed to a host of other activities so broad as to define the, define the kind of life that I will hereby live. Or they are, they are important consequences of our prior commitments. For instance, because I have broad commitments to a certain form of life, I am now committing to marrying you. And in most cases, I expect our ethically significant actions are done out of a mix of these two directions of commitment. That is why such decisions stand out to us as having ethical significance. Notice that all of this is to say that the ability to perform ethically significant actions presupposes that the agent occupies a certain logical space of reasons. That is, ethically significant actions are those doings for which we can give reasons, which must have a significance to us, and the giving and taking of meaningful significant reasons is to, to participate in a broad set of emotional, historical, and communal relations, along with possessing a great array of epistemic and practical skills. The kinds of doings asked of the subjects of Liebig-style experiments are not movements in the logical, historical, emotional, and practically significant world, so they shed no light, for good or ill, on our ethically significant actions. In other words, these experimental results are irrelevant to our sta status as beings capable of ethically significant decision-making. Further, notice that the decision to marry was not episodic. There was no one clockable moment at which I can say I made th this decision through a conscious act of will. Or at least I am not aware of when such a moment occurred, nor was I when it supposedly did occur. Such decisions, um, in such decisions, there rarely is, if ever, that eureka moment when one decides all at once to go forward with some course of action that would define the rest of their life. It is often much more like finding yourself in a state of having resolved to take that course of action already. There was no specific day and time in the winter of 2000 at which I decided to marry, though I know sometime in that vicinity I crossed the threshold. No doubt there were many millions of discrete events, mental and physical, whirling around in my vicinity during those months. Nevertheless, just as the addition of no one drop of rainfall marks the end of a drought, uh, no one of those episodes amounted to making the decision. That is a fact of the matter, excuse me, there is a fact of the matter, all things being equal, as to whether there was a drought last summer in Western Kansas, but is inherently vague when specified down to the drop, what quantity of water would have remedied the situation. It is odd to think that a single milliliter of water marks the difference, but that has no bearing on whether there really is or is not a drought. Likewise, it might be inherently vague as to when I make a certain decision, but that does not call into doubt that I made the decision indeed. I think if you, ref you reflect on most of the really important decisions you have made in your life, the ones with the greatest ethical significance, the resolutions that have done the most to define or confirm who you are, you will mostly find that there was no discrete moment when that happened, but a sort of finding oneself in a commitment after an indeterminate process of deliberation. In my experience, one usually admits to himself what he, he has already seemingly resolved to do, 
Maybe there are such ethically significant decisions occurring at discrete moments. And I'm not quite sure how we could sort out that question. But my point is only that the prior temporal discreteness is not a necessary condition for ethically significant action. Okay. The temporal ambiguity, ambiguity of ethically significant action, excuse me, the temporal ambiguity of ethically significant decision making, or at least some of it, brings us to the final salient feature of ethically significant actions. Ethically significant actions, by definition, are reason sensitive. But notice that they are often, maybe most often, only sensitive to reasons retrospectively, after the fact. As Alistair McIntyre puts it, quote, that, is the, that it is only in the course of the movement of the goals of the movement, pardon me, that it is only in the course of the movement that the goals of the movement are articulated is the reason why we can understand human affairs only after the event, end quote. In other words, often the reason for taking some of the most important actions in my life, the most, that, that those that most define my commitment to a conception of what is good in life, are not entirely transparent to me while I am making those decisions or performing those actions. The full reasons for an action, the significant goods that fully justify it, might only be available to us consciously after the fact. That is, after we have performed the action, that our reasons can now be seen as justified. Take the relatively mundane example of performing explicit speech acts. So you're just uttering a sentence. I need not explicitly take up a decision about all the words I utter in such sentences in order for them to gain significance, even though I'm committed to their implications. After the fact, I can tell you why I have said what I have said, but my commitment to a certain speech act does not require that I have reflected on it root and branch ahead of time, uh, especially down to its very component parts. Thus, we can be responsible for something, maybe even something of the highest ethical significance, but our reasons committing us to this responsibility might only be explicit to us retrospectively upon reflection. Indeed, it seems perfectly coherent for us to take our reasons from others, say wise counsel from a trusted friend, even, even when what makes these, co these considerations good reasons is not entirely transparent to us. In such cases, it's reasonable to accept full responsibility for the actions that are justified by these currently opaque reasons. Aristotle points out that even the wisest among us, quote, call upon partners in del deliberation on important matters when we mistrust ourselves as not being adequate to determine the answer, end quote. That, however, means the reasons justifying my actions, doings for which I am fully responsible, may be beyond my grasp as reasons when I actually perform those actions. My reasons are mine because they are features of the world I occupy. In virtue of my participation in the common human project of justifying our lives, not because they are always internally explicit to me. Once again, my decision to marry is just such a decision. Though the decision is perfectly justified by the available reasons, and I can now understand those reasons by justifying that decision, those very same reasons were not entirely transparent to me in the winter of 2000 when I found myself in resolution to marry. In fact, though they were maybe quite opaque to me then, two decades later, they are far clearer. Indeed, I suspect, God willing, those reasons will be even clearer to me in two more decades. Like any other movement in a meaningful world, 
the reasons for my decision to marry were not strictly internal to me, but had much to do with my occupying a certain place in history, a natural history or uh, institutional history or a cultural history, or even just the particularities of my life and the lives of others with whom I share attachments. Making those reasons explicit has been a 20 year long project of living a certain form of life, which is still open-ended. At this late date, I can make many of the, the reasons for my marital commitment explicit, even though I doubt I was consciously aware of them 20 years ago. But that is not to say that those reasons were not there in the world I was thrown into and took responsibility for by making that decision two decades ago. In fact, that I can cite such reasons retrospectively is, is some reason to conclude that they were indeed operative even back then. Once again, a quote McIntyre. It is because my, any exercise of the power to reflect on our reasons for action presupposes that we already have such re reasons about which we can reflect prior to our reflection, end quote. Bob, my pet chameleon's reasons for the particularities of his morning's, morning's hunt were there operating for him, even though he was not reflecting on them, nor will he ever do so. Thus, I do not need to reflect on something for it to be the reason for my acting. Like Bob, the reasons for, reasons for many of my doings, even some of my most important doings, are offloaded onto the world in which I participate. The point in all this is that many of our most significant decisions, the sorts of decisions we are raising our children to be able to make, are justified by reasons that may not explicitly be available to us until well after the fact. In short, reason sensitivity, in, in, the, in the reflectively significant sense, is mostly retrospective. As a rational animal, I should be on the hunt to make my reasons explicit, but that is mostly done looking back on what I have already done when I know better what I was really up to. My reasons for marrying were partly carried for me by my participation in a certain family, in a certain education, in a certain church. But those were my reasons because those institutions were constitutive of the form of life I live. They were constitutive of the person that I am, even though I didn't know it then. Though at the, very, at, at the time, very little of all that was explicitly crossing my mind. We may then conclude that ethically significant actions are not arbitrary, meaningfully significant, uh, non-episodic and retrospectively, at least, pardon me, we may then conclude that ethically significant actions are non-arbitrary, meaningfully significant, and non-episodic and retrospectively justified. Notice that the sorts of doings considered by Liebet-style experiments are precisely the contrary of such actions. They are arbitrary, insignificant, episodic, and wanting for antecedent justification. The doings of these experimental subjects just are not the sorts of doings at all relevant to our status as moral agents. This boils down to the classic apples versus oranges confusion. Certainly, Liebet and those who follow in his train may well show that in cases of randomly chosen finger tappings, we are not acting as bona fide ethical agents. But nobody should have thought we would be so acting in those cases in the first place. Liebet's experiments do not put any significant good in the breach regarding the subject's decisions which means that whatever he shows, it has nothing to do with ethically significant actions, nor does it pose any threat to a worthy notion of freedom. Okay. Thus far, I have attempted to motivate 
a certain view of the grounds for ethically significant action. Integral to this view is the claim that what makes an action ethically significant is not whether it has been efficiently caused by some sort of psychological mechanism internal to the agent independently of outside influences. I am not denying that freedom in, in that sense is possible or uh, that it isn't a necessary condition for ethical action. Rather, I simply see these worries as, be, as beside the point of what is most important for securing our self-understanding as beings capable of ethical agency. My concern is the, is the emphasis on the sort of condition for ethically significant action disposes us to miss what is cardinally important in this vicinity. Whether or not our wills operate as independent efficient causes makes little difference for how we raise our children, train our future colleagues, or plan our lives in deliberation with our neighbors. Rather, an ethically significant action is a performance that has a special sort of relationship to the form of life that we share. Specifically, an ethically significant action is justified by a commitment to a certain set of goods that together constitute the good life, or it is something that the doing of which commits one, on pain of inconsistency, to such a view of what really matters. Ethically significant actions are those doings for which one can give reasons, wherein reasons are justifications in terms of, of goods of ultimate concern. Acting in accord with a vision of what matters most in life. The perceptive listener will have already noted that I'm suggesting we worry less about whether something pushes us from behind and instead wonder about what exactly pulls us towards it as in a classically Aristotelian manner. What we want for our children, spouses, colleagues, friends, and ourselves is that we be motivated by certain goods that constitute our shared form of life. I also tried to show you how our relationship to these reasons for our ethically significant actions is often, maybe in many of the really important cases, only retrospectively accessible. We frequently piggyback for our reasons on the reasons that are out there in our world. That is, when I am doing the things that most express or constitute the sort of life I hope to live, the connection between those actions and their ultimate reasons is quite often not entirely transparent to me. Indeed, even the very goods that compose the form of life we are thrown into are often not entirely within our ken when we need most to decide in favor of them. Until we achieve a certain station in life, with retrospective when retrospective reflection is possible, our reasons for acting are mostly carried by our participation in histories, both cultural and biological, and institutions we have inherited, for good or ill. Because I am an organic product of a natural history, a member of a family, an inheritor of a language and a culture, certain reasons for my, for my acting, even though I might as yet have failed to make those reasons explicit to myself or anyone else, and maybe I'll never be able to do so, they are nonetheless my reasons. Throughout much of our lives, we depend on others, both particular others with whom we share bonds of friendship and institutional others providing context within which our bonds of friendship may be established, who have gone before us or along with us to provide the reasons for some of our most ethically significant actions. I take it that this is part of what Aristotle had in mind when he famously claims that a truly self-sufficient person must either be a beast or a god. We humans, however, are not mere robots or unreflective beasts. 
We can make our reasons explicit. We can, upon reflection, maybe after many long years, decide that our reasons for acting were not particularly good reasons for, for, for acting. And the actions that followed on them were subsequently not the right things to have done. We can amend our long-term dispositions for action based on these reflections, though only with a great deal of effort. We can further subject our inherited form of life to critical reflection, and even conclude that it is flawed and possibly requiring substantial revision or even wholesale rejection. Rational conversion is a real possibility. We humans are unique in that we are capable of reflective self-criticism of both our particular actions and the ways of life we suppose to justify them. The process of becoming capable of this sort of criticism is ethical education in the most important sense. And it culminates, even if never fully complete, in practical wisdom. Our achievement of wisdom will, for the most part, come late in life, a skill mostly exercised retrospectively, while looking back on our ethically significant decisions and providing reasons on behalf of our juniors who are now set to walk similar paths. Once again, I take it that this Monday morning quarter quarterbacking phenomenon in our exercise of practical wisdom is part of what Aristotle had in mind when he claimed that happiness only comes from the perspective of one's death. Certainly, we have to see how things wrap up ultimately for our projects before we can deem ourselves happy. But we also do not really know how to evaluate those, those projects until we have been made wise by carrying them out. Notice that the wise person is someone who is able to take responsibility for both her actions justified by her form of life and that form of life itself. Since we are capable of reflective criticism, we have a sort of ownership of our actions. The wise person sits on her deathbed and looks back over her life and can say, I understand why all that has been done and for good or ill, I respect, accept responsibility for it. All of this is to say that we are free beings. I see freedom in this sense as a threefold responsibility. We are able explicitly to connect our actions and the goods that constitute our form of life that would hopefully justify them. Those goods really do constitute a worthy form of life, and those goods really are our reasons for acting. In other words, a free person is someone who has entered the logical space of reasons, a person who can give legitimate and authentic justifications for her sayings and doings. Someone who, who satisfies these conditions has moved from being a default participant in the biological and cultural activities constitutive of a certain form of life to someone who can give explicit justifications for those activities in terms of real goods enshrined as most mattering to those who live that way. That is, freedom is to be an independent participant in the project of justifying our lives. The important contrast to highlight here is between activity and passivity. The fully initiated, initiated denizen of the logical space of reasons does not piggyback on the reasons of others, but comes to take active responsibility for her actions by offering sincere justifications. The free person has reached a point of maturity by moving beyond a passive role of accepting the implicit justifications on offer uh, from her form of life to an active role of reflectively and critically making those reasons explicit. Part and parcel of this movement from passivity to activity is a willingness to revise one's activities where justifications are found wanting. Surely any bona fide denizen in the logical space of reasons 
takes reasons to be normative in the sense that presence or absence of justifications has consequences for what you do. In this light, we can see that there's a threefold responsibility that's entailed by freedom, right? Which also entails a certain threefold knowledge. That is, freedom requires knowledge of one's way of life. One must know what one is committed to in her way of life and how those commitments are related to particular courses of action. Secondly, one must have knowledge of the world. One must know whether the goods enshrined by her form of life are in fact goods. And C, one must have knowledge of oneself. One must know whether it really is, a, it, whether he or she is committed to this, this vision of the good life. And that really is what motivates him or her in acting in the way she does. Thus, freedom follows on responsibility, but responsibility follows only on a kind of knowledge. Or as I put it earlier, we achieve our freedom in as much as we have realized a threefold wisdom, knowing our way of life, knowing the world, and knowing ourselves. We can see that the great threat to our freedom is not the impingement of efficient causes, whether the threat is provided by a deterministic universal mechanism or merely the fact that our neurophysiology may do the work we mistakenly credit to our conscious will. But really, the threat is ignorance. Indeed, Aristotle puts ignorance among the most insidious threats to voluntary action on par with the force of external causes. If freedom is wisdom, then bondage is ignorance. Our freedom is undermined when we do not know what we are doing. We do not know whether what we are doing is actually a good idea, or we do not really know why we are doing what we are doing. Whatever might obscure our vision in these matters subverts our freedom. In other words, given the three conditions of, of wisdom for freedom, we can see that we are threatened by a threefold ignorance. We could fail to grasp the goods proposed to us by our grounding traditions and histories, both cultural and, and natural, which is a failure of education. We could have the misfortune of being thrown into a tradition, along with a biological grounding, with a flawed epistemic relationship to the world. Right? We could be reared in a cult. Right? And we could fail to be uh, transparent to ourselves. We could fail to put our own motives under rational scrutiny. This triple threat of obliviousness is what, would re what should worry us about freedom, not whether our brains are doing all the work. Consider how tragic Greek drama right, makes this point. Okay. Uh, the most obvious example is Sophocles' Oedipus Rex. Consider the case of, of poor old Oedipus, the once great king of Thebes who fell prey to the supposedly blind vicissitudes of fate. Oedipus saved Thebes from the oppression of the Sphinx, with his cleverness and then took on the mantle of a monarch, uh, including a marriage to a recently widowed queen. All that happened not so long after he killed a middle-aged man in a Bronze Age road rage incident with a magnificent act of martial skill. Oedipus is the very archetype of the Greek aristocratic warrior, the, a, a mix of thymos, guile, and physical prowess. In terms of the first responsibility condition of freedom, Oedipus acts magnificently in terms of the form of life he inherited as an ancient Greek. Slain an arrogant brigand on the road, taking a beautiful widowed queen as your wife, 
and saving your city from a plague by an act of wit are paradigmatic instances of what counts for living the good life for an ancient Greek. Things, however, are not really as they seem with Oedipus. While he sits on the throne, another plague oppresses Thebes. And this time, an oracle indicates that the source is not an outside force, but an internal corruption. There is an incestuous uh, patricidal murderer dwelling in Thebes, and the gods are punishing the city. Oedipus, of course, vows to exercise this malignancy. But as the story unfolds, we find that it is actually Oedipus himself who brought on the pestilence. It was his father, then the king of Thebes, whom Oedipus slew on the roadway, and his mother with whom uh, he has conceived his children. We readers of Sophocles' play are not surprised by this outcome because we know the backstory. It was long ago foretold that Oedipus would slay his father and lay with his mother. It appears Oedipus, despite his personal magnificence and efforts to circumvent the prophecy of his grim destiny, was the victim of a rigged game, couldn't win. He was fated to these crimes since before he was born, just as his own children, all of whom fall on very rough times in Sophocles' sequels, are destined for tragedy. Oedipus comes to ruin through a systematic distortion of his understanding of who he is and what ultimately accounts for his motives. Oedipus's agency may have been thwarted by a kind of ignorance, but it's hard to excuse him entirely from responsibility for what he should have known. He knew the prophecy of his patricide and incest, and it's hard to take seriously that Oedipus never noticed a striking resemblance between himself and his wife, nor the odd coincidence that he just so happened to kill a man about the age of his father, etc., etc. Maybe appearances were deceiving for Oedipus, but he should have known better than to take everything at face value. Sophocles gives Oedipus only the thinnest patina of innocence, and that is no accident. Oedipus's sin is ultimately willful self-ignorance. He is not willing to look at the hard subterranean facts of what has really been going on with respect to his own thinking and acting. Thus, we should not take tragic fate as an external agency that forces our hand, but something we, we participate in by our unwillingness to look at the unsavory facts about our nature and personal motivations. It seems then that Oedipus had, prior to the revelations in the drama, completely failed to put himself under any sort of significant rational scrutiny. Or maybe he willfully ignored the revelations wrought by that scrutiny. In any event, it was that possibly willful self-ignorance that accounts for Oedipus's terrible fate. Tragedy then, fate, is, is not merely the operation of, of, of outside forces in our lives that might bring us to an ill end even though we have made the best possible efforts to the contrary. Rather, I see tragedy as a result of a failure to take responsibility for one's form of life and oneself. An abdication of our freedom by refusing to take seriously our responsibility for our form of life and our responsibility to ourselves. By not examining yourself, your reasons and motives, you leave your life to the play of fate. If things come out well for you, that will be merely accidental, as you have never taken possession of yourself. Even if Oedipus really did kill a brigand, save the city, and, and marry the beautiful queen, all great deeds for his times, he is only lucky that he is not party to incest and patricide. For all he knew, though he easily could have known better, he was really a complete lout. Why didn't Oedipus uh, ever put two and two together regarding the curious series of events that formed the most pivotal events of his life? 
the, cur the, the curiousness of which is so blatantly obvious to the reader or any other impartial observer. One can only conclude that ultimately Oedipus did not want to face the hard questions about himself. Therefore, his ultimate motives are dubious indeed. It is no accident that Sophocles has the tidings of Oedipus's horrifying wrongdoings originate from the Oracle of Delphi, where the motto, Know Thyself, was inscribed, and Socrates later claims to have learned that the unexamined life is not worth living. Sophocles, on my reading, goads us to ask Oedipus, really, what were you actually up to? And to see that failure to ask such questions of ourselves is what leads to our ruin, which, which dooms us to a fate. Tragic fate is therefore not an entirely external imposition. Rather, cases like Oedipus show that, quote, we conspire in our fate through our willful self-ignorance or lazy indifference to unflattering truths uh, about ourselves and our form of life, and therefore, quote, fate requires our freedom in order to bring our destiny down on us, end quote, from Simon Critchley. We are partly responsible for our tragic falls because of our inauthenticity. Our freedom and happiness are then threatened by our ignorance, and in particular, ignorance of ourselves and the way our own delusions may distort unwelcome truths about our form of life and our deepest motives. Thank you. All right, thank you, Dr. Madden, for that brilliant lecture. Yeah, um, I don't know how to repeat that question. It's a good question. Yeah, that's right. Um, so really, I, I like how you put that, like this is the, like, the, the three horizons are like the structure of the will, okay? But that's not how I would wish to put it. Maybe I should though, okay? That's not how I wish to put it because I'm trying to actually say, I want to try to leave will out of it as much as possible. You see what I mean? Uh, and I, what, I want, what I want to say is what, I go ahead and undermine freedom of the will. I think what's more important is freedom in the sense of self-knowledge, of self-clarity. You see what I mean? Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I'm just yeah. curious of now, would we be able to hold him responsible? Okay, yeah. So and and so to me that becomes a kind of paradox. Okay, all right. So I do think there's a fear and trembling that comes up here now, okay. right? Yeah. Because I can only judge by the standards that I've inherited, mm -hmm. right? But it seems like responsibility requires that I what that I I have to put those standards at some point into question. Mm -hmm. You see that? Yeah. So I think all we can do is hedge against fate, right? by doing the best we can to evaluate the very ground we stand on, but always knowing we're presupposing that ground by standing on it. Okay, so it's less, it's more of moral humility and less like moral fear. Exactly, okay. exactly. And I think that's, I love how you put that. That's exactly what I'm trying to do there, right? Yeah. Other questions? You understood what I was doing very well, like the first one, so thank you. I guess I got one, uh, how do you think about uh, what kind of impact or relationship is there between free will and the soul? Um, so once again, I'm, when I am not terribly concerned about free will, right? I'm, I'm concerned about self-knowledge. Do you see what I mean? And I, and I think the degree that we start asking like how this soul gizmo interacts with this brain gizmo, we're, we're asking the wrong kinds of questions about ourselves, right? Do you see what I mean? Because if, if, if you're worried about how a soul or a mind is interacting with a brain, do you see what I mean? You're, you're assuming what counts for freedom, responsibility, or ethical action 
is a relationship to things that happen consequent to what you're doing. Do you see what I mean? Um, so that being said, like, oh, that's, I'm trying to actually diffuse that whole question, right? Okay, now, also though, no, um, as an aside, I don't think of souls as minds, right? I mean, I think of souls as forms of living bodies. Okay, did you see that? So the very question of like, uh, how do I think free will re relates to souls, right? Well, free acts are things living things do, right? Living things are, like the soul of a living thing is its condition of being alive. So I, I think that, I think the, the relation there would be fairly unproblematic, right? Does that make sense? So you would say it's more uh, in the realm of the formal and final cause, not like the efficient cause. Yeah. 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 Um, so you mentioned, like, specifically in the case of marrying your wife, that with a lot of larger life decisions, there's, there's no aha moment in the sense of, like, yeah. now you know it, now you don't know it. It's, it's a gradual climb, and then looking back at it, now you have the, the in hindsight, you can kind of understand why you made that decision. Uh, do you believe that reflecting upon things in hindsight is going to give you later in life a better foresight in making new decisions in the heat of the moment, or is there never going to be that moment where you, you can even yeah. train yourself to try and understand why you make the decisions? Yeah, I, th I think, you know, one of the things I'm trying to press on this is that freedom is something we achieve, right? It's, it's like we gain it over time, right? And so the, the more experience you have, the more judgments you make, the more you get into the practice of making reasons explicit rather than presupposing them, you're going to get better at this, right? And then soon, then you might gain better ability to not retrospectively, but prospectively reason, right? That's one's hope, right? Yeah. The problem though is, is, is a lot of, as you'll find, is the really big decisions you have to make, you're, you're going to have to make them on deeply insufficient information, right? I mean, I think, I think um, hopefully there is a vision of the good life imposed on us early in life, right? Uh, I, don't, I don't know how else we can take responsibility unless we have a structure, right? A set of goods that we define ourselves by, by which we could, we could do that, okay? So if what you're asking is, do I, do I think that um, our ability to exercise responsibility is something you know, that, that's, I don't like, like the word environmentally determined, I would say environmentally dependent, right? Yes, 100%, I think so, okay. But no, once again, as one goes deeper into achieving practical reason, achieving freedom, right, hopefully you'll become less and less and less and less and less dependent on that, right? But never fully independent of it. It's the paradox I was talking about earlier. You're always gonna have to presuppose that you began somewhere, right? Yeah. Right. Other questions? She's poised, yeah. Um, 
how does your um, um how does Yeah, see, the thing is, I'm, I don't care about free will, right? You see, like my, my point is, is, is right, uh, is we do better not to think of our status as ethical agents in terms of these epistotic events that are like occurrences of a will. You see what I mean? Uh, now, something like just, but now say something like split brains, uh, if, say, split brain would be a way of really, really undoing right, my, like, the form of life that I began living, right, by sort of essentially dividing my personality or something like that, you see what I mean? So I think it could undermine my responsibility, okay, uh, because it would undermine my relationship to the reasons in my environment, but I'm not saying that because it would, like, thwart this, like, specific conscious act of will thing. I think that we put way too much emphasis in that when we think about these issues. Any other questions? Yeah, right here. Can you clarify on the paradox that you that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, it's that um, we have to be given something, right? Like we, we cannot just make up our world for ourselves, right? We have to begin by presupposing something we're getting, right? Um, and it seems that at some point though I have to be able to evaluate what I've been given in order to have responsibility. But ultimately, then, it seems though the, I'm going to have to fall back on those reasons I've been given in, a, in evaluating those reasons, right? So I don't think the project of becoming free, the project of taking responsibility for ourselves, is ever finished, right? We're always going to be approaching it, right? Because there is this possibility that we could have just got a bad start, right? Did you see that? Yeah, if that process is never fully finished, yeah. can we ever be fully you know, held accountable for our actions? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, like, there's, there's, always, there's always the possibility that you were just really unlucky, right? And what, what, is, what is practical reason? What is freedom? It's to try to live as little by luck and as, mu as much by reason as you possibly can. But are you ever going to overcome the, the, el the irreducible element of luck in your life? Surely not. You, know, you see what I mean, right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Right. And so I'm not saying you're never responsible, but I see it as it comes in degrees. Okay. And, and if it comes in degrees, you're never, you know, even, even think of it, this is why I use Oedipus as an example. Like Oedipus, I think Sophocles is trying to do this. It's like, looks like the best possible dude. I mean, for an ancient Greek aristocrat, the best possible dude he could be, right? And it turns out, he wasn't, right? And, and partly because of his seemingly unwillingness to analyze himself, right? But, but you can do all the analysis of yourself you want, and there's still the possibility that what? You're not fully transparent to yourself, right? We do this arbitrary thing, say 18. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Certainly, I don't think we do it that way. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I'll say, honestly, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, mm -hmm. right? But I think it's something for which there is no absolute fact of the matter answer to that. It's going to vary. And this is where like going to be the irreducible luck thing, because you're going to need your seniors in the project of reason to make a good judgment. Like, oh, no, Jim's ready to go now. We can count on him. Well, when I get turned loose, I better hope the people who turn me loose were right about that. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Right.
and I think and this is kind of like that my like polemical axe to grind in this is that you know I think we, we think the threat to our freedom is like materialism and neuroscience and all that it's not it, it's that we're undermining the cultural institutional stuff that made all these gray area judgments for us and that we depended on so that we're essentially not starting out with with a world that we're being put in, in the first place right other questions? Yeah. Uh, do you think that like reasoning and hindsight and trying to justify why you made certain decisions later in life uh, are as much a because um, because there's a lot of psychological phenomena where we try to sort of uh, justify things uh, after in in the sense of like trying yeah. not to go insane, right? Like let's say you were choosing between two schools and a year later you're asked why you chose this school in particular and you give a bunch of reasons to why you chose it, yeah. uh, and it's easier to see that after. But part of that is also just psychologically the fact that. Your brain can't cope almost with the fact that. Or you're like, just BSing yourself. Yeah, like, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. how much of it is uh, reasonable, rational ideas, yeah. and how much of it is just your brain trying to convince you of the yeah. fact that it's better here than it would have been otherwise? Because you can't imagine your life if you went to a different school, had different friends, married a different yeah. person, or anything like that. Or, or maybe there's just always kind of a, a bias that you don't want to say, I'm, I, I'm wrong, <laughs> right? This, this, I shouldn't have done this, right? You know, think out of this, right? In, in the part I skip, okay, I talk about how in this, that this is the man alone is a beast or a god, right? Like, like humans are such that because there's this irreducible luck thing that we are forever dependent on our friends primarily because it's my friends that I can kind of really tell me the truth about myself, right? Like the example I use is, you know, my wife could say to me, you know, you say you're voting against Smitty's promotion because you know, he's this terrible professional, but you and I both know, you know, he took your parking spot that one day. You, you know what I mean? So it seems I do need other people in my life, right? That I can, that, that, that can help me spot my own like Oedipus blind spots. I don't mean Oedipal in the Freudian sense, but okay. But like, I, but like it helped me like spot my own Cognitive blind spots about my own motivations, right? You see, and that, and that goes. To, I, 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 the idea is that, like, I think to see, like, we think of freedom as entirely to be free is to be independent on your own, on your own, on your own, on your own. Not a human possibility, right? Uh, to be free is to be in the right kind of dependence, right, among other people. Right. All right. Any other questions? I think there are truly self-destructive things, right? Right? Do, do you know what I mean? Um, do, do you see that? Um, and I think there are things we can do that are truly, truly, in no sense, good for human beings. Yeah. Do you see that? Now, then we have to ask ourselves: How do we get ourselves into a condition that we did that? Do, do, do you see that? Okay. And it's interesting. Aristotle, you know, defines vice as a kind of ignorance, right? It's like your ability to make these judgments has been completely clouded. You. Like you're huffing your own fumes so badly now, right? right? You see it, yeah. yeah, right. And so for me, like once again, I'm I'm not saying there's no responsibility in the classical sense. I'm just bored by that consideration now. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. And I also think there's a more important thing we should be asking ourselves, right? And so you know, I'm less worried about am I responsible for the bad things I do, and I'm more worried about like how do we raise our children <laughs> such that they don't do that? Do you see what I mean? Right. And I think that's like, that's the more it's like we're only worried about like responsibility in terms of punishment. Yeah. I'm more worried about responsibility in terms of 
human formation, right? And if you look at it, like what, like classically, like what the Greeks were worried about, they were worried about, like think of like Aristotle's great moral treatise, Plato's great moral treatise. Their their stories about education. That's what their stories about, right? Uh, that has been proposed, right? I mean, like 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 that's basically Hegel's view um, about history. Um, I am far less confident than he was that, that that's actually going on, right? If you see that. Um, though I, I do believe it is a possibility for us at the level of individuals, right? In as much as we have the right institutions available for us, right? All right. Uh, thank you for all the questions, and thanks again to Dr. Madden yeah, for a great event. If you have not Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.